Welcome to The Well Podcast, where we post the audio messages for our Sunday sermons. For more information about us and how to get further connected, feel free to visit our website at thewellaustin.com. Hi, my name is Ren Gardenhire, and today I will be reading 1 Corinthians 15, 42 through 44 and 54 through 58. So is it with the resurrection of the dead that it is sown is perishable and what is raised is imperishable? It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown in natural body, it is raised in spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. When there is a perishable body put on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, they shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, man, family, God is good. And all the time, all right. You know, we'd be wanting the th- people to think that Christianity like isn't a cult or something. And then we say phrases like that, light candles. All right, no, it's good. It's all a uh, all really good tradition that we have going on here. Um, okay, so we are in week two of our Advent series. Um, technically, week one of Advent once again, and we're a week ahead because we are as a church looking ahead. Um, thinking less about the first coming of Christ and the arrival of Jesus on earth and thinking a lot more about the second coming, his arrival on earth forever with us, uh, the waiting that we're currently in, the, the advent that we're currently presently thinking about is when Christ will return to make all things right. Now, I was supposed to preach last week, but I lost my voice and got real sick from the previous Sunday. And so Jason actually stepped in fairly last minute and did a phenomenal job kicking us off, thinking about our future hope and the reality that uh, we are waiting in now this hope that Jesus is going to fulfill. And this week, we're thinking about peace, the fact that in the uh, parousia, in the second coming, when Jesus returns, we believe that Christ is going to indeed return, and when he does, he will make all things right. And so rather than thinking about the advent of the first Christmas, we're thinking about the, the advent of the second coming of Jesus Christ. And this, the idea that Jesus will return, should thrill our hearts. Now listen, it's December, all right? We got a lot of presents to buy. We got a lot of holiday parties to attend. Uh, We got travel to organize. And so it's really easy to get lost in the sauce of the holidays. Uh, But what if we just slow down just a little bit, like even this morning, and recognize this second advent, another waiting period, another moment where we're thinking about the arrival of Christ, that as we look back to the first, and then we look forward to the second, if we still ourselves just a little bit, 
And if we reflect on the beauty of Jesus, then maybe, just maybe, our hearts will begin to find the rest and the joy that is often lacking in our over-commercialized version of this holiday. Maybe, just maybe, our, our minds, our hearts, our souls, our strength will be resurrected in a way that is needed to not just endure throughout life, but even to celebrate this holiday well, to genuinely worship Christ Jesus, our God. So I want to turn our attention very specifically on Jesus this morning. Cool? All right. Now, before we dive into the text, we have to uh, define this understanding of peace. Once again, hope is today. We preached on that last week, though. Now we're looking ahead, thinking about peace so we can prepare our hearts to receive it. Uh, Peace, biblically speaking, and peace, culturally speaking, are two very different ideas. Uh, In our culture, we define peace as the absence of wrong, the absence of conflict, the absence of harm. We define it as the removal of something bad, like no more wars. And this is definitely part of the biblical definition, but there's so much more than that. Peace, shalom, biblically speaking, isn't just the absence of wrong, but it's the restoration of all things. It is the putting of all things back together. It is the presence of good. I would argue what the world is looking for is comfort or the absence of suffering. And what Christ offers is far greater. It is full restoration. That's what the idea of peace is. We are often looking for the absence of something versus the glory of something. And absence is good, but glory is better. It produces more joy and more hope in our soul. The problem is, is that this type of peace often comes through suffering. Through a lack of comfort, do we finally get peace? So there's a paradoxical oxymoron that we kind of live in until this peace is full. And here's my thesis for this morning. My thesis is, is that focusing on the glory of Christ and his return and what will happen on that great day will not only give you peace in the present, despite the suffering that you may be in, but it will also increase our hope, which is what we talked about last week. And hope in Christ is never deferred. You hear me? Those who hope in Jesus will have their hopes fulfilled. Christ always cashes in on his promises, always. And so thinking about Jesus's return, my thesis will give you peace and hope in the present. As we think about the peace that Christ is bringing in the future, it will endure your hearts today, okay? So let's dive into the text. I wanna stir our affections a little bit this morning. And so I ask that you would meet with us, Holy Spirit of God. This text begins, so it is. Okay, now context, because that means Paul's talking about something, right? People in that time, just like in our time, did not believe that Christ was coming back. And they did not think that even if Christ came back, that he could do something like resurrect a dead body, for doesn't dead bodies decompose in the ground? Like, ain't that the fate of all of us? And so Paul says in verses 35 through 41, actually creation all around us gives us these parables, these analogies, all of these models of the resurrection. 
For example, he says in verses 35 through 41, if you have your physical Bibles, you can see it. Something is sown on earth as a seed, but then that exact same entity, that seed, and that same life begins to experience a better mode of existence and it resurrects into a tree. In fact, that tree then produces multiple others of the exact same type of seed. Paul then would say the death of the body is a very similar way. It dies like a seed, but when it resurrects, it produces something better. Paul says this is what the fate of humanity is. It is sown in all of these negative things, Paul says. Our bodies are perishable and dishonorable. Our bodies are weak and they are natural, but the seed of our flesh, it dies. And then supernaturally in the soil of Christ's blood, it transforms into something imperishable, into something glorious, into something powerful and spiritual and eternal. These words that I just described are not describing what God will be like one day. They're describing your body, saints. Glorious, eternal, like super sand is what you turn into, right? <laughs> It's like, okay, now the Greek word there in verse 42, it's really important. It's the Greek word uh, pathora. It denotes this process rather than a quality, okay? And so it's not just that, that something perishes, like, oh, it dies. That Greek word shows the process of that death. It eventually dies, and it dies more and more over time. So it denotes decreasing capabilities, increasing weaknesses and exhaustion, which finally that exhaustion then closes in on itself. That's what the Greek word actually means. Anyone who's over 30 can attest to this, right? You used to be able to go to sleep, you woke up refreshed. Now you go to sleep, you wake up hurt somehow, right? It's like our bodies are perishing slowly, but surely, by contrast, the other Greek word there, apatharasia, it denotes not a simple negation of that decay, but it denotes this utter reversal of the decay that you experience. It highlights this idea of increasing glory. So we are all, as Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 3.18, with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image as God from one degree of glory to another. That is what the second coming of Christ will produce. Restored bodies, glory to glory to glory to glory, not just glory to God, glory to glory upon your fragile body, saints. Now, you may be asking, okay, wait a minute, what does this have to do with the idea of peace? Everything, y'all. This is what peace is. Peace is not just the stopping of something bad, it is the restoration of all things. So now, not only will the earth be restored, like Jason talked about last week in Romans chapter eight, but even our bodies will be restored. Everything, y'all, your hurt back will one day no longer hurt, right? When Ernest dunked on me on the kingdom of earth, I will resurrect with a better body and show him my body was made real well and dunk on him in heaven. <laughs> 
right? Like, listen, like everything is going to be restored. What Christ is bringing with him in the return of his uh, glory is the restoration of all things, everything. Everything that is broken will be fixed. Peace is the making of all things right, okay? In fact, I think if we translated peace like this, every time we saw it, we'd be the better for it. Peace is not just no more wrong. Get that out of your head, at least biblical peace. It is taking even the things that are wrong and broken and harmful and bad, and it is making them right again. It is total victory, like verse 57 will go on to say. Now, let me sit in this for a second because the application isn't gonna make sense. It won't be helpful for us unless we truly understand this idea. Um, as Westerners, I think that we often think of salvation as an escape from something. In fact, even our biblical salvation, we're like, oh, we escaped hell or wrath. And there is true, there is an idea of escape, but we act more like the Greeks than we do like biblical authors when we think that way. The Greeks in this time, they actually believed that salvation was an exiting of the body because they saw the body as something bad. In fact, they, they called it the jail that they often said, or, or the chains, or the, the shell. And what they believed is that once their body died, their soul was then released into the cosmos and had free reign to be able to do what it wants. So it was an escape from something bad into something good. But Jesus does the exact opposite, y'all. Jesus is about restoring or fixing, or overcoming. The Greeks said that the body was bad, and once I escape this, I can have good. Jesus says, no, I made everything good. Sin is what makes things bad, but I'm going to tie sin up, and I'm gonna stuff it into the throat of hell, and I will undo everything that is bad and make good once again. This is the type of peace that our God brings. The second coming of Christ is not escapism, family. It's becoming fully alive. Shalom on earth forever. Jesus is going to fix everything. Everything. And so the first coming, the Christmas that we celebrate in this season, Jesus brought peace for the soul. Right, Because our lives are in Christ, our souls can now have peace. They can now have shalom with God. And though we still live in this flesh, and therefore we feel the effects of the fall of the flesh, the work of shalom between you and God has already been done in the blood of Jesus Christ. So we praise Jesus for his first coming. It was not in vain. The second coming, Jesus makes everything else right though. So it brings your soul to full completion. No more being plagued with the sin that drags you away from the presence of your beautiful God, but also you will then have all things made right too. It's not just the stopping of bad, it is the presence of all good. And so the first coming was peace for the soul, but the second coming is peace in everything. The first coming, you've been made right with God, but the second coming, God will make all things right. In the first coming, you've been freed from the slavery of sin, but in the second coming, sin will be no more and will only produce good for you. In the first coming, Jesus came in the flesh as a lamb, and the second coming, he's coming in the spirit as a lion. 
And the first coming, your future was secured. And the second coming, your future is received eternally. And the first coming, there was forgiveness of sin. And the second coming, there was no more sin. And the first coming, there was a decay of the soul that was stopped. But in the second coming, it is a restoration of the soul forever. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. I'm trying to make you long for heaven this morning, saints. The advent that we're in, the awaiting, when Jesus comes, there will be shalom. Everything will be made right. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. And so we long for his coming. At his first coming, the season that we're remembering, we should remind ourselves that if Jesus Christ was faithful enough to come the first time, honestly, when it was way harder for him to come because his coming meant his death, then won't he return again when it's much easier for him to come because he's coming in glory? If he already came to save you once, won't he come to save you again? It's easier this time, y'all. Jesus will indeed come. Um, Can I give you a practice that reminds me about Jesus's return? It helps give me peace even right now. Thank you, five of you, okay? Um, Because for real, you may be asking, okay, that was really cool. Like, how does this impact today? And we'll get there, but I need you to track with me. We're gonna worship ourselves into application today, okay? Um, I think many of us are longing for peace in the present because we're not thinking enough about peace in the future that is already secured for us. But in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus tells us to pray what? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Hmm. So Jesus is telling us to long for, to hope for, to literally pray for the second coming of Christ. He's saying there is a hope, a la the sermon last week, for what is going to come when the kingdom does come. And so literally, I actually pray the Lord's Prayer every day in my devotional time. I don't actually literally pray the Lord's Prayer. What I do is I take the structure of the prayer and I pray within it. And so it starts off, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's a worshipful act to God. So I begin prayer in worship. Sometimes I'll sing worship songs. Sometimes I will uh, just write out worship thoughts about God. Sometimes I'll think about the things that he's done for me. Sometimes I'll just think about who he is. But then the next prayer is your kingdom come. And so literally every day I pray that Jesus would return. And now you may ask, okay, well, well, how does thinking about the kingdom and the future and the return bring peace today? Well, saints, because as I am suffering, when I think about the peace that is coming, it's a lot easier for me to say, well, in the midst of this suffering, this must be the death of my flesh to produce in me the imperishable soul that God is working out right? Suffering may be taking the seed of my body and it may be burying it so that it resurrects into a tree of eternality. I don't think y'all feel what I'm saying, okay? Um, What I'm saying is meditating on the future peace is part of the balm that our souls need in order to suffer well today. I can endure this because I know what is coming, The future thinking reminds me that Jesus is going to win and that everything I lose here, he will resurrect it. He will restore it a hundredfold there. So these losses are nothing more than investments for my future reward in Christ. 
And that allows me to suffer well, knowing that Jesus will fix all things. It's not just that that suffering ends, it's that he resurrects what was lost, saints. This dog, I'm about to throw the stand over. This should help us endure, right? It is the burying of a seed that will produce a multitude of better fruit. And Jesus is faithful to his promises and God don't lie. So if he said it, it is true. Remembering and believing in future peace, it does not fully eradicate suffering today. That's not what I'm saying, but it does give an alleviation and an endurance to suffering today because I know that he's doing something with it. He's going to resurrect it, saints. It doesn't take it all away, but it does remove a little bit of the sting. Unless God is a God who lies, then we're all in trouble. But God is not a God who lies. And so the focus on this then is an act of faith. He is saying, I've already done it in part, so why would I not do it in full? Uh, Anthony uh, Thistleton, he's a commentator and a professor and a scholar. He says this about this text. He says, does such a destiny seem too good to be true? God's work as creator already demonstrates his resourcefulness as designer, creator, and artist to build a universe wondrous and yet multiform beyond human imagining. Is, it not, is not this sufficient guarantee that God has resources of wisdom and power to raise us different yet the same? Listen, Paul goes on to say this is literally what will happen. Notice he keeps going. He says that the perishable will put on the imperishable. Once again, do you see the theme of peace underneath this? Not American peace, not worldly peace, biblical peace. Perishable, our bodies are not being put off or thrown away like a used napkin. Jesus is going to fix all things. It will put on, it will put over bodies that will be even better. Then, he says, that's a really important word there. Then and only then, when Jesus comes back, will death be defeated. Now, I want to clear up a misnomer that Christians often say that I think has unintentionally hurt a lot of people who struggle on this side of shalom, where there's still a lot of chaos in the world around us. Yes, the death of Jesus brought peace into your soul, but until he comes to judge the world once again, there is still chaos all around our world, and death is one of them. Death is chaotic then death will be defeated, not yet fully. In fact, earlier in this same pericope, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 26. He literally says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Here, after he returns, then will death be swallowed up forever. And so at times, Christians have made comments like, oh, well, death is our friend. And I know the intention here, but I would not dare call something a friend that the Bible calls an enemy, yeah. right? I think at times what we're trying to produce is hope in the individual. And I understand this idea. When Jesus comes, he will restore all things. That is what hope is. But until then, things die. Dreams die. People die. And that is awful and that is painful in seasons like this, 
like Christmas, can at times bring that pain all the way to the forefront. You know, as a pastor, I am around death probably more than the normal individual. And so at funerals and things like that, I often have this comment when I'm the one that is doing the funeral where I will say something to the extent of, hey, listen, if they're a believer in Jesus, away from the body and present with the Lord. So we can rejoice in that hope that they no longer tasted death. Listen, John 8 is still true. If you're a believer in Jesus, you will not die. You will breathe your last earthly breath and immediately see the presence of God one day. That is still true. But do you know who's experiencing the sting of death? Everybody that's left. And here's the reality of this, y'all. Like at that moment, we're all feeling this pain of death and loss. And the reason that it feels so heavy is because you as an Imago day, you being made in the image of God, you were not created to experience death. So you feel it in your soul because it feels like something is wrong. Literally how God designed you, you were not supposed to die. Death is the result of Adam and Eve and ensuing all of our rebellion against God. And so when you start to taste and to experience death, it pains you in a way that's hard to communicate because you weren't meant to experience it, y'all. Therefore, it's really hard to endure because you weren't meant to endure it. You weren't meant to taste the sting of death. And that's happening all around us. I think about uh, tragedy in our world even today. Maybe let's depersonalize it and get a little bit more broad picture, but still thinking about how it impacts us. Think about something like the war going on right now with Israel and Palestine. You think about all of the death that is present. If you've paid attention to it whatsoever, then you've seen these terrible images that have come about of children dying and, and of innocent people that are dying. And listen, we know there's all sorts of history there that creates all of this chaos. There is oppression from both sides. There are these power struggles that are crazy. There are these historical acts that are shameful in a lot of ways. There are terroristic attacks that are chaotic. But what you and I can also recognize, despite our inability to understand all of the political power struggles that are there, which are often demonic in nature, by the way, Beside our ability to fully understand that, we can look at some innocent person, somebody who had nothing to do with this war, who's just trying to live their lives, and we see the death of them or their children and go, there is something that is wrong with the world, and it hurts. We feel the reality of it, even if we have nothing to do with it. We have missionaries over in that part of the region right now, some of whom have had to be sent back. Literally, this is stopping then gospel work, some of whom that are staying where there's all of this just turmoil and this confusion that is happening. And I think that we can look at death at those around us or death in the world outside of us and we can become disheartened. Like peace, shalom, uh, how can that truly come? And what do we do until it does come? And then if we personalize it and we think about the death that we've experienced, it's like, am, right? When Paul quotes death losing his sting, he's pulling from this passage in Isaiah chapter 25. And I wanna read this because I think this somber moment I'm intentionally creating, it'll bring a whole lot of encouragement to our hearts of how we endure peace today. Isaiah chapter 25, beginning in verse six, it says this. It says, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts 
will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take uh, away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So Paul then says, death has no more victory, no more sting. Death, family of God, is the exact opposite of shalom. If shalom is the restoring of all things, then death is the undoing of all things. It is the greatest consequence for fallen and broken humanity. It is the thing that we long to be freed most from. And so how can death be undone? How can it not just be stopped, but actually restored? How do we know that peace is indeed coming? How can we experience peace in the midst of the chaos and the death that is around us today? Is there peace to be had? And how in the world are you and I a people who bring it? Family, verses 54 and 55 that death will be undone, no more sting, no more victory. Those verses are true because of the first Christmas and the ensuing life, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension, and the assured second coming of Jesus is true. If all of what we celebrate at the first Christmas is true, then this heaviness that I just created, Jesus will take that heaviness and not just stop it, he'll literally fix all of it. He will undo all of it. Track with me here for this really long gospel point. It's important that we get this. In verses 42 through 44, once again, raised is mentioned four times. Resurrection only happens if something dies. I don't think y'all caught that. Let's keep going. Spiritual resurrection and therefore eternal peace only happens through Christ who died to make this available. Think with me. Christ is everything positive in this passage throughout all of eternity. He is all of these things that are mentioned on the screen and so much more. Jesus, our sweet, beautiful, humble, gentle, kind, compassionate, glorious Savior, he became death, chaos. Peace, the Prince of Peace, became the opposite of shalom. Shalom himself turned into tohu bohu is the Hebrew word. It's the word for chaos. It's a rhythmic sound to talk about the rhythms of chaos in the world that are around us. Like waves on the water, chaos keeps crashing up onto our souls. There is death that is all around us. Verses 42 through 44 is the story of Christmas. You see, Jesus became weak, like a baby, perishable as a human, natural in his needs, even dishonorable as he took on the sins of man. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, it says that, therefore, it was necessary for Jesus to be made 
in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. Jesus became this intentionally, y'all. Y'all, intentional suffering. You and I are trying to escape suffering at our cost. We desire comfort. Jesus intentionally went into discomfort. This was the first coming. The greatest chaos that can happen in this world is not just the death of the body, it is the death and eternal separation of our souls with God. This is what sin does. Sin drives not just our bodies into the grave, but even our souls away from the presence of God. So when Jesus comes the first time, he deals with the greatest death, spiritual death, by paying the physical payments of sin. In his death, Jesus now makes peace between us and God. Y'all, I guess that message has become too common for us. That should make us weep. You deserve separation from God forever. Jesus paid that penalty. He paid the cost that you may be in the presence of God eternally. But think with me here. In Gethsemane, Jesus approached death as a terror, right? And a horror. He approached death with this trembling and with this distress that caused him to begin to sweat blood because death separates us from God. And this is what Jesus was about to experience. It's interesting because the Greek thought at the time, once again, Socrates, for example, wrote a lot about this, was that the body was bad. And so the Greeks, they would try to meet death with composure. And they would say like, this is a release from the prison of the body. And therefore Socrates himself, you can look it up, wrote things like, I do not fear death, it is a friend. And so was Christ less courageous than Socrates? By no means. Jesus faced death as God-forsakenness, as a sacrament of God's wrath upon sin, absorbing the sting of death for us. Thereby, Christians may face death, not like Socrates, under the illusion that death is not to be feared. Death is still a painful enemy, but now we can face it under the truth that for those who have faith and trust in Jesus, death has lost its terror. Death has been transformed into a gateway into presence of God for those who believe. It is our seed being put into the ground and raised much more glorious than before. And so death still has poison fangs because it impacts everybody else around us. But now it is like a cup of poison that has been nullified by the antidote of Christ's blood so that as we drink it, not only are we not harmed by it, but we become co-laborers with Jesus and we'll end up stepping on the fangs of the snake along with Christ. Listen, he was bit by the snake so that we with him can step on the head of the snake. We experience their death. 
is what this text is saying. And I love the the idea that Christ and Paul are painting in this idea of death. You have experienced death around you, saints, you have. But when you die, you won't taste it anymore. And so death is still an enemy, but there is also power in the blood of Jesus. That is the first coming of Christ. Death is the deepest form of chaos. So if Jesus can conquer this type of death, the most chaotic one, and promise us future shalom, then can't Jesus handle your suffering today, saints? See how this focus on the future can give peace for the now? So is death to be feared any longer? Actually, no. Is death still a painful enemy? Well, yeah, it is. But at the first coming, Jesus made eternal death, peace in our souls, shalom in our souls possible. So that is at his second coming, he can make peace everywhere in everything, not just possible, final. It will happen. And so death may have seemed like it won your mother. It may have seemed like it won your sibling your friend, your father, your grandparent, your child. It may have seemed like it is winning against your own body. And while death may still be scoring points, we know who wins the game. Death may seem scary, but we know the dragon slayer. Death may sting, but that poison has been consumed by somebody else. Death, the greatest chaos bringer, met Jesus, the greatest chaos tamer. And if you believe, though death may have hurt you, those in Christ are only seed in the soil. And one day, a tree, unlike you can ever imagine, will produce from that seed of death. That loved one, wait till you see their new resurrected bodies. Wait until you finally have yours. If Jesus can undo death through death, can't he undo all evil and bring about that much more good? This is what the coming of Jesus implies, saints. We bless God for that truth. And so what do we do now? If all of that is true, how does that impact today? Paul ends this so ironically, y'all. Like it almost feels anticlimactic in how he ends this section. After 40 verses on death and Jesus and undoing all of this death, he goes back to the beauty of Christ and he's like, okay, now go work. Right? That's the end of it. Like chapter 16 is the end of his letter. It's like, what? Like why? Right? Well, because you and I, because we believe in the resurrection to come, are actually creating peace around us right now. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's how the prayer says. We know what's happening in heaven, so we begin to try to create it here on earth. What we are doing, it matters, y'all. We're foreshadowing the heaven to come. Here's a thought I like to play around with sometimes. John the Baptist had one of the dopest ministries that ever existed, even though he was weird and strange and nobody liked him. But he was literally preparing the first coming of Jesus. And because he did that, he got the honor of baptizing Jesus. How wild is that? Do you know that for the generation that's alive when Christ comes, the whole generation is like the second John the Baptist? Preparing the way for Jesus that one day we will get to hear the trumpet sound and see the glory of the Lord. And actually, Paul says in Thessalonians, we won't even die. We will immediately join team Jesus and reign with him forever, even to go and judge the angels. What type of chaos is that, y'all? 
That's crazy to think about. We are preparing the way and we get to partake right now in seeing people go from spiritual death to life. We get to see people beginning to experience the peace that will be theirs even right now so that even in the midst of chaos, we're tasting peace to come. So we think about the coming of Jesus. He will make all things right because he already paid for it. All of the promises of God, saints, they're all pointing to the second coming. And this is what we hold on to, that Jesus is gonna wipe away all tears. And if he has already come in suffering and in hardship, then won't he come in glory and victory? And for those who believe, you will reign with him. And so yes, death may be taking advantage just a little bit. We are not pie in the sky, peaceful type of Christians. We recognize that there is still a lot of promises to come. But if he saved you once, then he will for sure save you again and not just stop the decay, he will make all things right. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. I love you all. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that we are not a people without hope and we don't have to paint these like cute pictures of hope as if we don't feel the suffering in the world around us today. Living on earth is hard. There's brokenness. There's chaos. There's confusion. There's frustration. There's destruction. But oh my gosh, the love of God. You entered into chaos into destruction, into brokenness, that our souls might be freed forever. And so God, I wanna pray just three really, I think important prayers for us this morning. God, one, I pray for those who may not have a relationship with you yet. Maybe they have not surrendered to you as Christ. Maybe they have not surrendered to you as Lord. Friend, listen, I want you to know that peace in your soul must happen first so that you can transform into a spiritual being because the Holy Spirit comes inside of you when you believe in Jesus. And then when you're buried in the ground, you will raise in glory because Christ is glorious. Listen, you can have relationship with God resurrection, eternal life, you, all things that have been bad, all things that you have done bad and all things bad done to you upon belief in Jesus. What we believe is that because of the power of Christ, he will restore all things, forgive all sin, restore all of the brokenness around us. And that happens through faith in Jesus. If you profess faith in Jesus, if you say, God, I believe in what you have done for me, I want you to enter into my heart. I want to follow you as my God. If you make a profession of faith and the scriptures say, you are saved, but not just escapism saved, like leaving of all the bad. No, God is going to fix all things. That's the promise for those who believe. I would encourage you today to place your faith in Christ, to say, God, I wanna follow you today. God, I pray for each of us who have made that profession of faith. At times, the enemy can come in and lie to us and can say, look at all the brokenness around. Does God really care the same lie he told Eve? You care so much, Father God, that you sent your son into this broken world to die in our place. You love us. 
and you are a healer and you can heal the brokenness right now and you will heal the brokenness forever. I pray that we would believe in you, Jesus. That we would trust you, God. I pray over each person in this congregation today that you would bestow upon them grace, peace, joy, love, hope, that you would show them you are already at work fixing all of the chaos in the world around us and you will bring it to full completion. I pray peace over these men and women, peace through the powerful work of the Holy Spirit. I ask that we would receive your peace even now, Jesus. Praise in your very beautiful name. Amen. Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. If you want more information about us or how to get further connected, please visit our website, thewellaustin.com.